Uh, my name is David. I'm part of the team uh, uh, that leads this community, and uh, I just want to extend a welcome to you. Um, we've got some exciting stuff coming up. I think in September we're going to be speaking to some of the things that Jude has mentioned this morning. So ways for you to connect in the community here in Redeemer. We're going to be talking about our tables. We're going to be relaunching those tables. We're going to also be talking about what we do with our money. We're going to talk a little bit more about that and how we're actually using our money to help bless our city more and more in something called the Justice Fund that we set up. And we're going to be talking about that in September and a whole lot of other things. But hopefully, um, yeah, that will be helpful for us as we kick on to this next year of church life. We're in a series in the book of Revelation. So if you could open your Bibles, um, you've got them in front of you. You've got a smart phone app. It'll be on the screen as well. Um, We're going to look at the sixth letter um, in this series of seven letters that are written to churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Um, I don't know, it's such a strange book, the book of Revelation. It's such a strange, misunderstood book right at the end of the Bible. Um, Hopefully you've found it. We're going to go to Revelation 3, 7 to 13. I'm just going to read the passage And then we'll dive in. So to the church in Philadelphia, verse seven. And so the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the words of the holy one, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power. And yet you have kept my word and have denied my, and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you because you've kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try uh, those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I grew up in the church. Um, I was brought along the church every week. And uh, I find the book of Revelation just utterly fascinating. I don't know if any of you had the same experience growing up in church and how much you died. I used to turn to the back of the Bible and always just look at the book of Revelation and there was maps and all sorts of weird stuff. I was fascinated by the weird language and all this talk about beasts and dragons and battles and these dream-like portraits of heaven with angels and elders and martyrs and this throne and a lamb and all sorts of things going on. And I had not a clue what any of it was about. Not a clue at all. It's, it's a really misunderstood book, Revelation. And it's actually been really misused as well. We've talked about this in previous weeks before, but I just wanted to do a little bit of a recap. Because the thing that Revelation did for me was it fascinated me. I didn't understand it, but it fascinated me. And also we, as we've discussed Revelation, is one of the books that found it was the, one of the hardest books to get included in the canon of Scripture. In fact, Ryan reminded us in week one, or told us in week one, in fact, that Martin Luther 
he famously didn't think it contained anything of Christ and was not welcome in the Bible. That was until he started to use it to preach that the Pope was the Antichrist. But um, that sums it up right there. It's a book that's constantly misunderstood and misused. So people use it to say what they want it to say. And so I had no clue about what this book was all about. Here's the one thing I did know about it though. It was apparently depicting the future. That's what I knew, that's all I knew. Apparently it depicted the future, which added to the intrigue and the mystery of this book in the scriptures, that it foretold the end of the world, the end times, and if you've heard that term coined, and that Revelation contained all these answers, like these, these details to literal geopolitical events that happen in history right up to the 20th and 21st century. If you could understand the weird language and the image, imagery in Revelation, you would understand what is going on in this world. Strange. Do you remember um, growing up, the Magic 8-Ball? I've had a friend with a Magic 8-Ball. You could buy it at Argos. It was a round ball, and you shook it, and you asked it a question. And it, it sort of produced an answer. Does anyone remember? Hands up if you remember the Magic 8-Ball. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really wanted one of those Magic 8-Balls. Um, the answers were all pretty general. And I figured out after playing with it for a while that it was pretty much a pile of nonsense. But it was pretty fun. I sort of think, though, that, that people have used Revelation like a Magic 8-Ball. Like they've just taken the book of Revelation and they've just shook it and asked it a bunch of questions about the times they live and they've found answers that are just simply not there. They're not true. It's really just a pile of nonsense because the thing about the Magic 8-Ball was you just, if you didn't get the right answer, you just kept asking it again and again and again until you got the right answer. In fact, I think people use scripture as a whole a little bit like a Magic 8-Ball. Like they just shake the Bible until the answers that they want come out of it and miss the point of the whole story. So sadly, as I've come to understand the scriptures and as I've come to understand the book of Revelation, I've began to realize that people have used it that way, trying to get the meaning and answers that they want. And I think this is really important for us. Why are we talking about this? Why are we recapping? Like, I think it's really, really important for us to acknowledge the time and the place that we live. Because when I grew up, I was taught the book of Revelation through a particular lens. I was taught it through this lens of a fancy big word called dispensational theology. It was just the, the lens, the interpretive lens through which you understood Revelation. Ideas about tribulations and the rapture and so on, all these strange ideas. If you've been brought up in that world, you know what I'm talking about. But for the first 1800 years of the church, Nobody believed in any such thing. Nobody believed in any such thing like the rapture, for example. That is a new idea. So it's really important that we actually acknowledge and unlearn some things about a book like Revelation because we need to unlearn and relearn. And so that's why I think it's helpful that we set what we're going to talk about this morning, that little passage I just read in context, again, to remind us. Because although we, ha we are not looking at the whole book this morning, we're not looking at the whole book of Revelation in this series, this summer series has been quite short, but it does give us context. Here is the big idea of Revelation again. If you want to know what we've been talking about for the last five, six weeks, Revelation is not this magic eight ball. It's not this detail of like geopolitical events. It is a stunning portrayal of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. 
Amen? It reveals to us a prophetic critique of, this is the first P word, the pattern of empire versus and compared to the second P word, the promise of God. The pattern of empire is laid out in this weird book, in this apocalyptic language. And it's compared to the promise of God, Jesus Christ and his kingdom. And throughout the scriptures, the age-old pattern, the age-old pattern that humanity lived into was this idea of empire. Empires came and empires went. Empire, what is empire? Empire is the idolatry of powerful economic and military superpowers that rule by force, that oppress, that manipulate people for their own gain and their own prosperity. Beastly empire. The pattern was the empires, they oppress, empires dominate. Empires exclude, empires demand allegiance, empires are violent, empires are consumeristic, empires pervert and suppress truth, empires cling to power, empires exploit the weak and the vulnerable, empires rule with fear, empires tell lies, empires take. Calgacus, who was a a Scottish warrior, Caledonian warlord, who fought against the Roman Empire. He said this about empire. He said, to robbery, slaughter, plunder, they give the lying name of empire. They make it a desert and call it peace. And against this portrayal, this portrait of empire, this idea, this pattern of how history in the world has been laid out, the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus Christ stands in stark contrast because the gospel of Jesus has always been and today continues to be good news. It is good news because it does not follow that pattern of empire, but it unveils the promise of God. From the burning vision that the writer John saw on Patmos, pours forth all of this weird imagery and language to sum up this glorious promise. This is it coming up here in Revelation 11, 15. The world, this is the promise, the world has now become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. That is the idea of, that is the big idea of Revelation. That is the revelation of Revelation. That despite what you see in front of you in this world, all of the mess, all of the brokenness, all of the chaos, all of the power struggle, all of the injustice, despite what you see, Jesus is coming to take his rightful place and in the end usher in his kingdom of peace in its fullness. And he will restore this world to its intended design. Amen. The kingdom does not follow the pattern of empire, but alternatively, it is the way of self-sacrificial, non-violent love. Led by a king who gave himself up for his people. Led by a king who comes with a sword in his mouth, as Revelation talks about it, but not a sword to destroy his enemies, but a sword coming from his mouth is, a, is an image of how Jesus comes to fight, to fight with truth, to fight with truth that set people free 
from the lies and the manipulation of beastly empire. Jesus does not follow the same pattern of violent power taking things by force. Jesus lays down his life. Jesus comes to set people free and overcome his enemies, not by taking their blood, but by giving his own blood. You see the difference? That's the story of Revelation. That's the story of the gospel. In fact, it's the, it's the storyline throughout the whole scriptures and it is told dramatically and magnificently in this book of Revelation. So it's not this blow by blow account of world history with all these details, but it is this prophetic critique of empire and this heralding of the promise of God. Yes, so this book was written particularly to the Roman Empire critiquing the Roman Empire at that time, but it also applies to every empire, whether it's the Egyptian, the Assyrian, the Babylonian, the Persian, the Greek, the Roman, or whatever other empire you want to put in there, whatever superpower you want to put in there. Revelation widely and creatively portrays this comparison between beastly empire and the peaceable reign of the Lamb. What it does foretell, though, is that the eventual triumph will be Christ's. That the way of self-sacrificial, non-violent love led by this king will win in the end, despite what you see. That the first will be last. That there will be justice, that there will be peace, that there will be restoration. That at the end of the story, God is putting this whole mess back together. Revelation 21 says, behold, I am making all things new. And there's an image of a city with a river running through it where everything is at peace. Shalom is restored. You see, behold, I am making all things new. You see, empire is this old idea that is repeated and repeated and repeated throughout history perpetuating chaos and brokenness. Empires coming and empires going, but behold, Jesus is doing a new thing. He's been doing a new thing this whole time. He didn't live up to those expectations to come by force as a king, which is why they ended up crucifying him. But his kingdom goes by a completely different pattern, by self-sacrificial, non-violent love, and it will win in the end. It will win because people will lay down their lives for the sake of this world. He has set us free so that we are the people that live his way of self-sacrificing non-violent love in the world. That's our mandate. Amen? Amen. That's what Revelation's about. It's not about 666. It's not about Armageddon and weird stuff. It's about Jesus and his kingdom coming. And so it's that context. At the very start of the book, we have seven letters. We're in number six. And these are the words of Jesus in this book, writing to these seven different churches in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, and he's writing to them in the context of the Roman Empire, and he's writing to them to encourage them as Christians living in and under an empire, how you survive that, how you survive that until he comes, how you get through. How do you live as a Christian, as a citizen of a nation, a citizen of a superpower, and remain faithful to Jesus. And so these letters contain this prophetic insight and this power that we should read, and it's required reading for us today, and we're gonna do that now. As we live today in the 21st century in the United Kingdom or Ireland, so what does Jesus say through this letter to the church at Philippi? What is he maybe saying to us today? That's the 
the, the, the question that we're asking. How should Christians live in empire? Well, in all the letters that Jesus writes, he's concerned that the Christians might become complacent. They might be selling out to the way of empire, to taking things by force, to being complacent toward that. So the letters are an attempt to create loyalty toward the kingdom of Christ, to encourage them, to sustain them, and to remind them that this pattern of empire crumbles in the end, that it's evil because it's inherently wrong, evil. And that the revelation of Christ overcoming evil and empire is a promise that should motivate every Christian in every generation to remain faithful. So Jesus writes this letter to the church at Philippi with these same aims to sustain their faith and witness as they live in the midst of an empire. Philippi, what's Philippi? Let's talk about the city of Philippi for a second. Philippi was a really prosperous city. Really prosperous city, known for its beautiful buildings and architecture. So just hold Belfast in your mind for a second as we talk about this particular city. We're gonna draw some some things out today. Philippi was the youngest of seven cities in Revelation. And Philippi was originally founded as a city with the deliberate intention to be a carrier of Greek culture to the world. So Philippi was designed to be like an outpost of, the, like a missionary outpost of Greek culture. A missionary city, if you will, now it was in the hands of the Roman Empire, much like the other cities we've looked at. It was also practicing emperor worship, the worship of Caesar, the worship of emperor. There were temples everywhere. The other thing about this area at that time, Asia Minor, modern day Turkey, central Turkey, is that it was known for having a lot of earthquakes. So not only was Philippi a city, a missionary city, Philadelphia, I'm saying Philippi. Philadelphia was a missionary city. Philadelphia was a city that had just experienced an earthquake 50 years before the book was written. So the whole city of Philadelphia was destroyed and had to be rebuilt. It had to be rebuilt from a grant from the emperor. In some ways, think about it like this. Belfast is a city today that we live in that has come through for the last 50 years an awful lot of history that has happened to this city that you can actually read when you look at the buildings in our city because parts of this city have been destroyed because of the history here. We live in a post-conflict Belfast and it has been destroyed and rebuilt. The memory is still there of that period but it has been rebuilt. That's a little bit like this city of Philippi. Some of the cities in that area that suffered that earthquake, they actually changed their names to honor the emperor. So the emperor poured the money in, rebuilt it up, and they thought, let's, let's honor the emperor. Let's change our name. So Philadelphia was renamed Neo-Caesarea, which means Caesar's new city. However, the rebuild was slow, and people felt that the emperor could have done more in the end. And they felt the whole city, the people of this whole city felt somewhat neglected. And it got worse because the neglect turned to a sense of betrayal. Why did it turn to a sense of betrayal? Well, here's the thing about Philadelphia too. It was not only a missionary city, it was not only a post-earthquake city, but it had this volcanic fertile soil, which meant that it was really, really good for growing vineyards, for wine. In fact, it was so good that it really competed with the vineyards of Rome. 
in the valley just outside Philadelphia. And thus, the actual center of their worship in Philadelphia was to the Greek god Dionysus, the god of wine. So it was known for its wine, and it was the backbone of their economy. And it competed, as I said, with the vineyards in Rome. And it was so good that the then emperor Domitian ordered that all of the vineyards in this valley were ripped out and torn up, probably because he wanted to give the Roman vineyards a little bit of an advantage to thrive. This is what empire does, even to its own citizens. So the people of Philadelphia, firstly, a missionary city, secondly, earthquake, thirdly, betrayed because of the ripping up of the backbone of their economy. This is the context. Now, within that city, there is a church of early Christians to which this letter is written. And the early Christians in this city would also have felt betrayed. They would have felt betrayed because of all the reasons I've just talked about. So imagine this church receiving this letter, and it says this. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. So imagine them reading this letter and it opens with Jesus as the Holy One, meaning he was different, that he was other, that he was pure, that he was incapable of wrong, in fact, that he would never wrong them. Or the true one, which means that he was faithful, that he would never neglect like the emperor and the empire neglected, that he would be the one who would never neglect them or betray them. Imagine them reading these words that into the context that they were in. This was a word that this small church in Philadelphia needed to hear, that they were desperate to hear. Because it's a time today where we sit this morning of great uncertainty in Northern Ireland, in our moment, if you pay attention to anything that's going on, where we feel let down and neglected by leaders, by politicians who've promised much and failed to deliver, politicians who are full of lies, politicians today who don't even care that they're telling lies, mistruths. So maybe... That's what's on our hearts and minds today as we sit here. Or maybe in some other areas of our lives more privately, we've experienced some kind of wrong or betrayal or neglect. And Jesus wants to reveal himself today to us, to Redeemer, and to our city of Belfast as the Holy One who will not wrong us and as the true one who is faithful and will not neglect us. In a world of mass media and fake news, corrupt leaders, wars and famines and injustice, Jesus stands as the promise of God, the Holy One, the True One, the one who we can trust. Let's read on. Open doors and shut doors. We hear Jesus talking about open doors and shut doors in this letter. The words of the Holy One, the True One, he has the key of David, he opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. I know your works, behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. What is all this talk about open doors and shut doors in this letter to this church? Well, here's the thing quickly. In this city, like in all cities in that area, there would have been an established synagogue community of Jews, a Jewish community that were worshiping. 
So the images of the doors shut actually refer to the fact that this church of Jesus had been thrown out of the synagogue and had literally had the door shut on their face. So they were closed off. They couldn't worship with their fellow Jews. You have to remember that Christianity wasn't its own thing at this point. Christianity was a sect within Judaism. So people who were following Jesus and declaring that Jesus had risen, the risky claim that Jesus had been resurrected from the dead, they were still participating in the full religious and social life that it meant being a Jew. They were still participating in that, and yet here we have them thrown out, thrown out and having the door shut on them. N.T. Wright helps us imagine this scene. He writes that we should not imagine like a street like Donegal Street with a couple of different churches and you know a couple of hundred people in each one or whatever. We should not imagine that. What we need to imagine here in this city is a Jewish synagogue of thousands and thousands of people with its own buildings and its own community life. And then we have a church, the church, the Jesus followers. And they were like 12 people, or 15 people, or 20 people. Like we're talking about like this tiny, that's the only Christians in the whole city, was like half a dozen people, maybe, maybe 20 people in this city. And this huge, big Jewish community within the wider city. So it's not quite like our city today. But those 12, 15, 20 people were holding on to this risky claim that God had raised Jesus from the dead. So there's a big imbalance between those two communities and their size and their influence. And initially, Jesus followers would have worshipped, as I said, in the temple. But I suppose as their devotion to Jesus increased and increased and increased, just like the letter to Smyrna, the large Jewish community were unhappy that they were proclaiming this Jesus as the Messiah. And Lord. And so they used their, their influence in the empire, in the city, their civic status to block the message of Jesus, to sit comfy, keep the status quo, and they shut the door on the Jesus followers. It's interesting that I've lost my place. Here we go. Oh, here we go. Yeah. Shut the door on the Jesus followers. So the Jesus followers were excluded. What does that mean for those Jesus followers? What that meant for those Jesus followers, the 12, the 15, the 20, would, would be that they were excluded from the social religious life, as I was saying. They would have experienced this sense of, of alienation from family and from friends. Uh, they would have been excluded. They would have experienced a great deal of shame that they weren't at the synagogue when they should have been at the synagogue. They might have even went up to the synagogue and knocked on the door and tried to get in, or they were told at the door, you should just, you're not allowed in. They were completely excluded. So can you imagine the pressure on that, those 12 or 15 or 20 people to just go, do you know what? Let's just throw the Jesus Project in the bin. I've had enough of this. Like, let's just go back to the, the community. Let's just forget about the Jesus thing. Like, it's, it's fascinating to understand that this is another fascinating aspect, and there's a lot of teaching here, I know, but this is another fascinating aspect of what's going on in this context, was this, that Jews were, ex being excluded from the synagogue for these Jewish followers was really dangerous. Why was it dangerous? Because Jews were excluded from having to declare Caesar's Lord. Jews were excluded for having, for, from having to do that. So, for this group of Jesus followers, um, 
basically there's a register in the synagogue that would have all the names of the Jews that didn't have to declare this. And if the Jesus followers were kicked out, then they would be taken off the list. And so they're now vulnerable because it's really dangerous. They now are at risk because they'd have to be required to declare that Caesar is Lord. And it's interesting that this perhaps is related to, do you know the statement a few verses before in Revelation 3 verse 5 where Jesus says, I will never blot your name out from the book of life. Like maybe that's a reference to the fact that they had literally had their names struck out on this book in the synagogue and they've been excluded. Jesus says that he is the one that will never do that. He is the one who shuts doors and opens doors. So here we have this tussle between the Jews and those that are following Jesus and who's faithful? Who is faithful? Is it the big community? Are they the ones that are kicking out these heretics? Are they being faithful? Or is it the the little small posse of resurrected Jesus people? Are they the ones that are seeing that God's doing a new thing, doing a completely new thing? And staying faithful and true. Well, we see if you look at verse nine, we'll find out the answer because Jesus uses really harsh words in this letter. He calls this large community because of their actions, a synagogue of of Satan. Because they had sold, why is he using that language? It's simply they had sold out. They They were being led astray just by their their own interests, protecting their own interests, staying comfortable within the protection of the empire, using the civic status that they had to block this, the gospel. They were not paying attention to the spirit of God and how the spirit was moving. And Jesus actually says in those verses that he's, he will make those Jews, he's encouraging the little posse and he's saying, I will bring these Jews in this large community to bow down at your feet and they will see that I have loved you, that, that I am with you, that God is with the Jesus followers. He will, and that imagery is really powerful because the Jewish people have always been taught that God would bring the nations to bow down at their feet so that they would see Yahweh as the true God. And here is Jesus saying, no, these Jews that have excluded you in the synagogue, I'm gonna bring them to your feet and you're gonna see that this new thing I'm doing through Jesus is where I'm at. This is sort of profound, profound imagery. So Jesus commands this small church. He commands them, because they could have been tempted to throw the Jesus thing in the bin and just get on with life. He commands them though for their patient endurance. He commands them for their patient endurance. Through all of the trials and all of the dangers and all of the shame and all of the alienation, Jesus says a number of things. I'll quickly read through them. Verse eight, I have set before you an open door. Because you've kept, verse 10, because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial. Verse 11, I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one will seize your crown. 12, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God, the name of my city, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from heaven, uh, from my God out of heaven. So Jesus is encouraging this posse of little Jesus followers. He's writing this letter. Maybe he's writing this letter to us today as well. Maybe we can, we can, we can see what Jesus is doing to encourage this church of 12, 15, 20 people in Philadelphia. And we can receive this for ourselves. Because he says, if you patiently endure, if you hold fast, here's what's coming to you. There are some promises 
some promises that he speaks to this excluded group, this faithful group, this, en- this encouragement and this commendation of their faithfulness. And here's what he says, hold fast because you will triumph in the end. Love wins. Hold fast because of three, three things. Number one, hopefully they'll come up on the screen behind me. I will make you pillars in the temple of my God. Speaking about security. I will write the name of God on you. Speaking about your identity and belonging. And I will set before you an open door. Speaking about opportunity. So it's, it's really interesting in a city that has been known for being destroyed that Jesus promises to the ones who hold fast that they will be like pillars. Eh, interesting. Not really interesting. I think that's interesting. It's interesting in a city that's also known for renaming itself after the emperor. That Jesus says that you will have the name of God written on you. In fact, you will have the name of the city, the new Jerusalem written on you. It's really interesting to me. It's also really interesting that in a city that was a missionary city to Greek culture, that Jesus said that he will set before the church of the faithful, the ones who hold fast, an opportunity, an open door that no one will shut to advance and go forward. It's really interesting to me. An opportunity perhaps to take this good news of the gospel of Jesus to the hearts and the places that it hasn't yet reached. How is this, how is this possible? How is this possible? Security in the house of God, identity belonging to God, opportunity that nothing can withhold and get in the way of. How is that possible? It's possible because these people had held fast. They had resisted the patterns of empire and they had trusted and held on to the promises of God. That's what's going on here. They had kept my word and not denied my name, Jesus said. And in me in Jesus, like us today in Belfast. In Jesus, we have all we need. We have our security, our identity, and our opportunity, not in the surrounding empire, in the surrounding nation, but in the name of Jesus, holding fast to him. Holding fast to him. What, is tr- what does that look like for us today? What does that look like for you today? Because some of you here today, I know, are not holding fast or are clinging on by your fingernails. I've been there too. Because I know some of us today, there are areas of our lives of, around security and identity that are perhaps in ruins or the city of our soul needs to be rebuilt And I think Jesus wants to write us a love letter today. And he wants to encourage us today in Belfast to hold fast. Because maybe today you've been suffering from, let's, I know there are people in this room that have been suffering in your own personal life with illness. And you've had an earthquake in your own personal life that's, that's hit. And I want, and Jesus wants to write a love letter to you today and he wants to say to you, Hold fast. Let no one take your crown. You are a pillar in my house. In fact, I will be a pillar for you. I will not neglect you. I'm here for you. He will allow those vineyards that have been ripped out to grow back again in your life. He will let the wine flow again. Or maybe today 
you're grappling with doubts about if any of this is true. Jesus wants to encourage us today. He wants to encourage you today to hold fast that no one takes your crown. In fact, last week at Open Skies, Jonathan Martin, who was a speaker there, was speaking about this this moment that we're in in the Christian church where we've become, I think rightly so, disillusioned with a lot of what the church has done and maybe a lot of mistaught things. And there's a, there's, a, there's a lot of people out there with platforms and podcasts and books and they're deconstructing everything about the faith. And I've been in that place and maybe that's where you're at today where you're just completely and utterly scared that you're going to lose Jesus because that's where you're at. That's the situation that you're at. And the encouragement, their need, deconstruction can be really helpful, but the encouragement to you today is to hold fast and don't give those people power to take your Jesus away from you. Hold fast to Jesus, the Holy One, the True One, the One who will never neglect you. Some of you today might feel a sense of unworthiness today. You might feel like, you just can't live up to this calling. There's a sense of shame or alienation or you just don't feel like you're doing your best. I was just reminded about this quote by Rick Villadis. It says that integrity is not living something out perfectly, but it's wrestling with something faithfully. Integrity is wrestling with something faithfully. Perhaps that's where you're at this morning. Or perhaps this morning you're struggling with that sense of alienation or or shame, you feel like you've been forgotten or neglected. And maybe this world has literally just ripped out those vineyards from the valley of your life, and there's a desert land, like that Caledonian warrior said earlier. It's a desert land, and you feel cheated or betrayed, or you feel exploited by the the worldly patterns. There's a promise for you today And Jesus wants to encourage you to hold fast so that no one takes your crown because he is the holy one and the true one, the one who will never neglect you or betray you. In fact, he comes to make the wine flow again. He comes to restore joy. He comes to bring life. He comes to lift your shame. He comes to welcome you into his family. What is... That's, hold, what's, that's maybe what holding fast looks like for some of us in the room today. What does holding fast look like for us as a collective, small church? I think it's connected to this opportunity to hold fast that Jesus talks about, this open door. This church in Philly, and I think it's the same for us today. I think there's an invitation for us to walk through the open door, and I think this invitation is an invitation to hold fast to the way of Jesus. Just hold fast to that way, which is the the way of patient endurance and self-sacrificial, non-violent love in the world. I think that's the the invitation for us. As a community, we have a a choice. What is the alternative? The alternative is that we're like the the synagogue Jews, where we we just, keep the status quo and we stay comfortable 
or we can hold fast to this risky claim that Jesus is actually who he says he is. He is resurrected Lord and King. Jonathan Martin says that it's the path of Jesus as in the path of self-sacrificial non-violent love, number one, or number two, it's consumerism, it's greed, and it's, it's violence. And those are two paths. That's it. Why waste our time, breath, and energy arguing about anything else or about something else is beyond me. The open door of Redeemer Central today for us is to live the way of Jesus in Belfast, to patiently endure, to hold fast for the sake of our city, that the city of Belfast might know the Holy One, the true one, the one who will bring ultimate security, ultimate peace, ultimate identity, and ultimate belonging, the one who will lift our shame and cast out fears and make the wine flow again. That is our calling as a church. Bishop Curry, this is the guy who preached at the royal wedding. Do you remember him? He said this, Jesus had founded the most revolutionary movement in human history, a movement built on the unconditional love of God for the world and the mandate to live that love. This is the calling of the church today, to live out this way of Jesus. Perhaps in the past, the church has got caught up in unhealthy patterns. Perhaps in the past, the church has actually rubber stamped what the empire has done. Perhaps Christendom has meant that the church was like a chaplain to its activities. But now that's not the case. Nobody wants to know about the church. Maybe that's actually a healthy position to be in. Those that would shut the doors in the face of any prophetic critique. We are called this faithful way of Jesus for the sake of the world. Redeemer, we exist. We exist today for the sake of Belfast. And we need to hear, heed the words at the end of the letter, which says this. He is an ear, hear. Let him hear what the Spirit is saying right here and right now. Brian Zahn says that Revelation does not depict New Jerusalem as belonging purely to the future, but as a present reality in the process of becoming. And the baptized are called to participate right now in the newness from above. Eugene Peterson, the intent of Revelation is to put us on our knees before God and to set the salvific shaping words of God in motion in our lives. If we hold fast to this way of Jesus, no matter our personal circumstances, because he is faithful, no matter what's going on in our culture, in our nation, in this island, and where this island is going, and where, this, where Europe is going, where this world is going, no matter what's going on in all of that context, we should not worry, because we are living the faithful way of Jesus. Amen? Amen, I love you to stand. I love you to stand. We're gonna do that today. I'm gonna invite the band. Thank you for being patient with me today. I know there was a lot there. I hope it was helpful. The actual reason we came today, despite it being 12.30, we did start late. We did start 15 minutes late. The real reason we came today, I believe, is not just sing songs and it's actually not just to listen to me even though I've went on for a good 35 minutes it's actually the point of today 
is actually what we're about to do right now, which is to come to this table here, which is the table of Jesus. Because that's really what we're about. We're about practicing this meal together. Um, And the reason why we do that is because we believe Jesus is at the center of everything. And this is his table that he invites us to. And in a very, very real way, this is not just a remembering of Jesus and all he's done for us. But this is a place where Jesus is actually present. It's some kind of mystery that as we take this grace of bread and wine, that we can be actually filled up today, that we can be restored. In fact, this table is not just a a remembrance, as I said, but it's a celebration, it's a feast. Or as Jonathan Martin last weekend, I like, like the way he put it, he said, it's medicine for the soul. So if you're sick, you should come and taste of the medicine. Because the resurrected Christ, the one who we declare is Lord of his kingdom, he is present at this table in a very mysterious and particular way. And so if you're here today looking for answers, God doesn't really give us all of the answers, but what he does give us is a meal and he gives us the bread and he gives us the wine. And as we take of it, he is close to us in this meal like in no other way. We can experience his presence as we eat and we can proclaim him as Lord. And I wanted to say this, this, this table is not our table, Redeemer Central. This is the table of Jesus. So as we say every week, this table is open for everyone. And we do mean everyone when we say everyone. This table is open for all. The invitation is here to come and experience the welcome and acceptance of the love and grace. So God has made room for us at this table. There is a seat at this table. No matter who you are, if you come humbly and you come hungry, Jesus invites you to come and experience his grace and his love today. And as we do that, that is a prophetic act that says that he is the holy one. He is the true one. He is the one I'm pinning my life on. He is the one that never neglects us. He is the one that brings ultimate security. He is the one that shapes our identity. He is the one that invites us into new opportunities. He is the one that does this and no one else. This is the promise of God.